Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Christina Ricci got her first paid acting gig when she was 10 years old. She was Cher's daughter in Mermaids in 1990. Within a couple of years, she was everywhere. The Adams Family, Casper, now and then, one of the biggest child stars of the 90s. But Christina Ricci didn't want to be a child star. She didn't like kids' movies. As soon as she could, she started taking grown-up parts, artsy, boundary-pushing grown-up parts, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Ice Storm, Buffalo 66, The Opposite of Sex. We're talking about iconic indie movies. Show business is, of course, a fickle thing, though. And while in those ensuing years, Ricci kept working, she didn't get as many of those big, thrilling dream parts. These days, though, we're in a Ricci renaissance. In 2019, she was cast as Misty Quigley in Yellow Jackets. At the time, it was just a buzzy, upcoming show. In 2021, it premiered on Showtime, and it was a hit. Critics raved, audiences loved it, and it got Christina Ricci an Emmy nomination. Yellow Jackets is about to kick off its second season, March 26th. There's probably no bigger Christina Ricci fan than Jordan Cruciola. There's certainly no bigger Yellow Jackets fan than Jordan Cruciola. And Jordan got to talk with her about Yellow Jackets and much more just last year. If you don't know Jordan, she is a film writer and the host of the Maximum Fun podcast, Feeling Seen. In case you haven't seen Yellow Jackets, it's about a group of teenage girls who survive a plane crash. The timeline on the show alternates between the crash and now, when the adult survivors are forced to sort through their trauma. Christina Ricci plays the adult Misty, one of the survivors. Misty is a bit of an introvert who was never popular growing up. She's usually eager to please, but she also has a dark side. We'll hear more about that later. This scene comes from the second episode of the first season of Yellow Jackets. Adult Misty is on a first date, and like a lot of first dates, things start off a little awkward. She's eager to know more about her date, Stan. But Stan? Not so much. So she decides to spice things up a little. Escalators, knuckles, steam clams, obviously. But enough about me. What turns you on, Stan? Oh, uh, I don't know, just uh, usual stuff. Hair? Oh, wow. I can work with that. <laughs> Another real hair? No, That'd be great. Not. It's just, I have to be up kind of early tomorrow, so. It's six o'clock. And I thought you said that you just got fired. Well, technically, I said there were some interdepartmental redundancies post merger, so, you know, I wasn't really fired so much as it's, uh. What the hell? I suppose one more drink won't kill me. Christina Ricci. Hi. Welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. I guess my first question would be, why do you think, when did you become aware that we're really 
there's a collective rooting for Misty. Like this surging of like Team Misty, yes, girl. I am Misty. She is me. Like, have you tuned into that part of the fandom of the show and you're doing press around it? Not really. I mean, I know that people really like Misty. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's difficult to be aware of and feel those things, yeah. I think, yeah. when you're just sort of going through your daily life. Like, I feel like I'm on the ground. I'm just problem solving and dealing <laughs> crap. And, like, I'm not aware of what everybody else thinks of me. You For know sure. what I mean? Like, it's this really weird thing where, like, all this stuff is very intangible. But I have been told mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. <laughs> so I am aware. Yes. Well, and in, in, in being told about it, being inside of this character, living in her skin, being in her head, and obviously you went after this role because you felt something for her and you felt you could bring this character to life. What do you think of the fact that people are like, that is like, this is the Misty gang and we align with this person, we root for this person. How does that register with you as somebody knows Misty better than anybody, really? Well, when we actually went to series and we were about to do the second episode and everybody was up in Vancouver and people kept saying to me, oh my God, I am Misty. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, really? Is that really what you want? To tell me right now <laughs> that you are this psychopathic mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's the part that people relate to. Mm-hmm. I think people relate to the awkwardness, the inability to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that this person has been so kept down and frustrated and isolated. And her life is probably not great, but she refuses to have a bad time. Mm-hmm. I think that is the best thing about her and I think why people love her is that she has accepted. I think she's accepted in a way Mm -hmm. that she's never going to get what she wants and that's why she manipulates forces. I still think she has that compulsive need to Mm -hmm. try to connect but I think she realizes that it's never really going to happen. And so she's sort of created this autonomy for herself. Like, Mm -hmm. she doesn't need anyone else to have fun. She doesn't even necessarily, I think, fully take in the person next to her. (laughs) She is on her own, having a great time. There's, like, a whole internal thing going on. And I love that kind of person, a Mm -hmm. person who's been squeezed so much in their life. They're like, you know what? I'm an nihilist. I'm having fun. I don't care what happens. Let's go. And that is my favorite person. And I do think that I connect so much to that because I do relate to that. And I think that is really part of being a successful survivor Mm -hmm. is to Mm -hmm. not just survive things, but to get to a place where you're like, I'm having fun. (laughs) It. (laughs) I hadn't thought about that before, but that really does ring so true. Like, she refuses to have a bad time. Refuses. And no matter how mean anyone is to her, she refuses to Uh let them see her feel it. She'll hurt them later. (laughs) She's keeping receipts. She's got a ledger. She's checking it twice. I love a person who is so formed by pain, frustration, loneliness, mm-hmm. but has turned it into this, like, she's like a like a happy cockroach. You can't kill her. <laughs> she is going to be around. Yes. And she's going to have fun. You know what I find, too, about, like, because I'm a bit of a, a person who sort of refuses to have a bad time as well. My mom's mantra that she really instilled in us was, like, well, it is what you make of it, Jordan. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of, like, the personal responsibility of, like, okay, I guess I'm going to make this the best for myself. And the thing that I have noticed is, like, 
you put me in a backpack next to a college campus, I look like an undergrad. Like I'm 37. I still pretty much look like I can pass for 19. And I find that there is a lack of taking me seriously that I run up against as somebody who refuses to sort of have a bad time mm-hmm. and who presents very enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I had a conversation with a boss who I ended up talking about like it was we got to work preposterously early one morning. I don't know why it was me and her at like 7 a.m. But I told her about my dad and his struggles with addiction and like the house being repossessed by the bank and all this stuff and watching her face just drop as I explained this. And she was like, that happened? And I was like, yeah. She's like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you'd you'd gone through. And I think she kind of didn't realize I'd gone through anything. Yeah. And it is amazing how that kind of externalization of that kind of past experience can lead people to like almost undermining you. Yeah, because they, they kind of think you're a bit of a joke or a bit of a yeah. naivete. Like I have to say, I'm similar. I have been through quite a bit in my life, and I refuse to not be happy. Mm-hmm. And when I am nervous, I make self-deprecating jokes okay. and goofy voices, <laughs> which is not really appropriate for a 42-year-old professional <laughs> who's trying to be taken seriously. It doesn't help. But you know what? I can't stop doing it. And I find that people do—it it is true. You are— Telegraphing to people lighthearted kind of goofiness yeah. that really is a reflection in some ways of what you've been through, mm-hmm. but it, it's not the obvious reaction. Right. It's almost like the, it's like the counterintuitive. You have to go through the whole journey and mm-hmm. then you get back to, you know, I'm going to project happiness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and, I, and I, I've read you talk a bit about how like misty kind of weaponizes a passive aggression and you've remarked upon like, it's great. I love that passive aggression about her. And I think I've been, as you said, you've been through a lot and and obviously your life has happened, um, a part of your life, not the entirety of your life has happened in a very public manner. And I wondered from you as a professional in this industry, a professional woman, at what point did you start localizing in on the ways that you were going to sort of leverage your power in a situation? Did you find it was passive aggression? Did you find it was a friendliness, like per- perhaps a comforting femininity, like the ways in which women yeah. use the tricks we have to sort of gain leverage in a room? Like, where did you start finding your avenue of power as a professional? I think that um, the way I am at work is very different than the way I am socially, even when I do press. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of artifice at work. Mm-hmm. At work, I'm frighteningly direct, <laughs> and I don't put on anything, and I don't manipulate because I'm at my workplace, and mm-hmm. I just, you know, for me, it's like, it's the one place I don't have to pander yeah, to yeah. anyone. But I did find then that in my personal life when I was younger, I used to try to be less, I was told that I was really intimidating, and I came off as cold, so I started to do baby voice at a certain point, and then I got stuck, and I could not, I had a whole relationship once where I used baby voice, and then the second I was out of it, I stopped. Did that person realize that you did that voice, or did they just think that was your voice? They loved that voice. So it was not not an ideal situation. Yeah, that's a red flag right there. But it was this whole thing that I was less, I think I was less threatening even to him. Uh And then I I kind of took that as like, oh, well, this must be how everybody feels. So I did this baby voice forever. And then I had a couple of friends that were like, you just can't. We need to stop this. I can't. (laughs) It's intervention time. Yeah. I had this friend, Jay, who was like, I can't. You're going to have to repeat that sentence without that voice. And <laughs> did I, you realize you were doing it at that point? I did, but it was really hard for me to do because it was one of those, like, an apologetic laugh. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that I do. I still have very, I'm very, like, I have a very apologetic demeanor, even uh-huh. though I don't mean that at all. Like, that might be the most <laughs> passive-aggressive thing I do. 
is say sorry. People are wow. always like, oh my God, stop apologizing. And I'm like, well, I don't actually mean it. Yeah, it's you're just, like, I'm insulting you right now. No, actually. Not insulting. <laughs> not insulting, but it's like a placeholder. But I realize that it's a bad placeholder for a woman yeah. to project. But yeah, I've tried all these different things. I am, you know, I'm five foot two and I look very young mm-hmm. and I cannot dress like an adult, no yeah. matter how hard I try. Girl, me I either. try so hard. That's so I, inspiring to me. I can't. I feel like I'm in a costume. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but I'm just in a variation of jeans and t-shirts that I've been wearing. Yeah, I usually life. have like a uniform. And this uniform always, no matter what the uniform is, makes me look like a sturdy toddler. And I'm fine <laughs> with it. That's fine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but that doesn't really get you far in mm-hmm. terms of like power in the world. Yeah. I look like an unpopular sophomore in high school. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Same. So I am very passive aggressive in public with strangers when there's, you know, any kind of conflict. Or, I can't be directly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm too yeah. small. It's yep. too dangerous it's not for afforded, me. We're not afforded that permission. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. So I've always been a little bit passive aggressive because that is the only way I can safely express my rage mm-hmm. in public or amongst strangers, or like at the airport, mm-hmm. you know, kind of vibe. And so, and I, I've always thought, it is such a valid way of expressing rage based on your position in life, your physicality, mm-hmm. um, your sex, mm-hmm. all these different things. It is a way of expressing anger that I have always used yeah. or tried to use in my performances because I do think it's very valid. Yeah. And not all performances, obviously, but but I've it's something that I've before tried to work in and it has not been something that people liked. I was okay. always discouraged from it. And so to get to use it in this is... Fantastic and so validating, I think. And interesting. I mean, you look at a character like Misty, who's wonderful and fun and entertaining, but yeah. really is so gnarled and petty and small yeah. and grasping for any kind of power over anyone that she can have. So, you know, that scene in the pilot it was the only scene in the pilot that I had. And the pilot was the only thing I read when they offered me the part. And I just loved that idea. Like, oh my God, here is an example of, you know, you hear about people abusing the elderly and you're like, what kind of person does that or wants to be around that? And then you get to see, I got to read this scene and see this scene and you think a person this small and petty, you know, the thing that was so exciting to me was the idea of getting to go home with this character. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like what does that person who likes to abuse old people do at home? Right. Who are they? Yeah. Like all of that is such an amazing jumping off place for a character. You know, I've, I've read you describe it like as being like in a room on your own playing Misty with how sort of emotionally isolated she is from everybody, even when she's with people. And how does that play as somebody who needs to be a scene partner? Like, are you reacting to the person in the scene as much as you are just internally working through what Misty would be doing to further Misty's like need in that moment? Like, are you as reactive to your scene partner playing Misty as you would be in other roles? Yes, but I'm reactive the way that Misty's reactive. Yeah, yeah. She's reactive like a person who is watching Mm -hmm. from somewhere deep in her brain. She's always so controlled and she's always disconnected. She can't connect. And Mm -hmm. that is really like her core issue from the beginning. So... Yes, she's reactive, but it's a much more controlled kind of person. Mm -hmm. And there are times in the season where she loses control Mm -hmm. and does have genuine reactions. And you see little moments of those things, but she is a person that will always try to maintain control over herself Mm -hmm. because she is, she's creating a personality. More with Christina Ricci still to come. She'll talk with Jordan about why taking on comedic roles makes her deeply uncomfortable even though she has played 
many great comedic roles. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, our guest is the actor Christina Ricci. She starred in The Addams Family, Casper, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Last year, she earned an Emmy nomination for her part on the TV drama Yellow Jackets. That show is back for a second season, starting March 26th on Showtime. Interviewing her is Jordan Cruciola, film writer and host of the Maximum Fun show, Feeling Seen. Let's get back into it. So there was a thing that I wanted to talk to you about, too, was I think in this, there's such a, there's so many wonderful moments with, with Misty in the show that are like the audacity of Misty. Like, holy the audacity of well, Misty. Well, they crossed some major line. <laughs> and so I think when people, you know, it's that whole thing where, what is it? The needle, if you push the needle far enough where it comes back to, or, yeah. you know, and also like once you cross, I think that in life, there are certain thresholds uh-huh. and boundaries and once you go through them and you realize that nothing changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for somebody who doesn't have a lot of remorse, guilt, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're just Those like, oh, wow. So they're really, there's no rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, so it's, it's anarchy. Nothing. I feel like she's a bit of an anarchist because she has broken through all these different rules and boundaries. And, mm-hmm. and that feeling of freedom, I think that's another thing you get from Misty, this sort of wild, like, anything is possible mm-hmm. vibe, which <laughs> in like a fun like surfer dude would be like, so great, oh my God. But in this character, yeah. it's terrifying. Yeah. Because she's like a feral creature. Yeah. She's a feral creature. Well, and it, in a thing that I love so much about this role with you is you're very funny. Oh, thanks. You're very funny. You've always been good at being funny. I think when you... When, I'm so like, uncomfortable with it being funny. But like you hate it. But like okay, so you hate it. But like you're good at it. So is it like is it a thing that it's like okay, I reluctantly embrace this aspect of Misty, or it's like okay, this is a fun thing that I don't typically focus in on often with character. It's not like a thing that defines me as a performer. But like you have a real dexterity with comedy, and you always have since Wednesday Adams. And that it's like probably the pro- I try very hard to understand why I hate it so much and why mm. I'm so uncomfortable with it. And I think it's probably one of those like totally annoying like caricaturish actor things where like I'm taking the character so seriously yeah and like really <laughs> figuring out all of her motivations and yeah. how she feels and her pain yeah and, da, da, da. and then people are like oh my god hilarious <laughs> and so I think that might be where it comes from I also know that I have a tendency to uh, subconsciously because I was never trained so I think mm. I learned a lot of things as I was growing up. So things happen for me, for the character and for performance, without me intentionally doing them. Right, right, right. So, like, I'll find that I have mixed my ego and the character's ego sometimes. And so I think in some ways also I'm uncomfortable because I know that you're laughing at the character and then my mm. ego's been mixed in there and I'm okay. like, don't make, don't laugh at me. Right, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> so how dare you? I think it's a really weird thing and I have to just, like, Learn how to control my brain. <laughs> so when so when so when Misty so when Misty looks at Natalie and she's like, "We're citizen detectives. That means no one hired us or asked for our help." You don't necessarily recognize that. Are I you get, playing no, that no. straight? I get it's funny. Okay, okay, but I have to play it straight. Yeah, or else. Yes. So if I'm playing mm-hmm. it straight and then everybody's laughing at me, mm-hmm. the emotional journey yeah. is I said something honest mm-hmm. and everybody's laughing, mm-hmm. even though. 
as an actor, I totally understand that's the point of the scene. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, know, what I mean? it's you, know so, you nailed it, but you resent everyone for yes, knowing you nailed yes. it. Yes. It's just like a weird emotional confusion. <laughs> <laughs> and I promise I won't ask you to do this a hundred times, but I just have to know, I have to know about the mechanics of, of the scene where... Natalie is about to relapse. She's at the end of her rope. And it's one of the, I feel like it is one of the few times in the first season where we see Misty doing something truly selfless, where she is spying on this woman. She is spying on her friend. She has tapped her motel room. And she knows she's about to, like, descend into a drug blitz. And Misty rushes over to save Natalie, bursts into a room, and starts doing her cocaine for her, shoving Natalie out of the way in one of the great moments of physical comedy of television 2022. How many times did you run through that room and plow into Juliette Lewis on the edge of a bed? We shot that scene for a very long time. <laughs> I have to say it. I was eight months pregnant, so it was difficult. Stop. Yeah, I was eight months pregnant. I couldn't stand for very long, and I was standing for a real long time. So that scene did take a long time to shoot, and physically it was difficult because I was so pregnant. But I have to say, you said she does a truly selfless thing. I mean, it's the closest we get to Misty Selfless. It's like the sliding if, scale if, of selfless. If Natalie goes back to drug addiction, she's lost. Misty will lose Natalie forever. That has nothing to do with Natalie's well-being. See, this is what being Team Misty gets you. <laughs> These charitable reads, Christina. You're like, you need to oh my God. stop. Listen, this is a toxic, toxic relationship. We're all in a toxic yeah. relationship with Misty. Yes. <laughs> they counsel us out of this. You're the only one who can help us. So, I mean, I just... For me, the idea is, like, she can be this noble character, but she's totally ignoble in every way. Every way. But you can also make her appear that way. But yep. that is the thing that I also feel about human beings. I don't believe in altruism. Okay. Really? I don't. Was that is that a learned disbelief? Like, I've at a certain point, you like, I was a screw child. this. Okay. Since I was a child, okay. I have felt this way. Because you can always, there's always a good thing that comes from mm-hmm. Doing good for other people, mm-hmm. even if it's just that you feel better about yourself yeah. or you feel less upset about mm-hmm. someone else's situation. So I've always been that kind of jerky teenager who's like, there's no such thing as true altruism. So and, and, and I feel like that tracks with Misty. And I feel like you can still like people mm-hmm. and understand that they're completely motivated by their own needs. No, there's a thing that I, you know what I absolutely love about that is that I'm a, I'm very much a part of the love language of like, I like to give things. I like to give of myself. And I absolutely make it clear to people like, you know, there are boundaries and limits and I work with each individual person in my life. But there's like, a oh, you know, I, you, you do so I feel like I don't like do. And I'm like, girl, listen, it makes me happy to do this. I'm happy you're happy. And also this is beneficial for me. Like I get something out of yeah. this. Like, don't worry. I am taking care of myself. No, that's how I feel. I feel like if everyone around me is happy. I'm safer. <laughs> That is the perfect evolutionary response of a petite five foot two woman in this world. Yeah. If I keep everyone happy, that everything will be safe and calm in my cave. <laughs> well, I, I think Misty is so of a piece with, I mean, and you've obviously spoken to like playing characters that like sort of consistently throughout your career that are sort of categorized as an other, like that are sort of on the fringes or sort of on the outside. And I, I wanted to know how aware you were sort of with your affiliation sort of with the queer community and people connecting to you in that way. Like, is is that a part of, like, a fandom and appreciation of Christina Ricci that you are like, yes, I've, I've been made aware of this over the yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially when I was younger, I okay. had a lot of support from the LBGTQ community. And it meant a lot. And I've been bolstered by that community. And my success, I think, rests a lot on the shoulders of that community. We don't check out on people. 
<laughs> we <Yeah. laughs> free, friends for life. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we are friends for life. Free, free Britney. The the, the queers are the backbone of like the free Britney movement, and yeah. we broke a conservatorship open for that one. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like, really great work, guys. And um, and I have felt the benefit of being friends with you guys. So really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, and I want it. Like, do you like? Is there something unexpected that you have sort of learned about a perspective on your characters through, like, understanding the relationship that queer folks have with them? Like, wow, I, you know, I obviously wasn't playing it that way, but you be kind of have become an avatar in so many ways at so many occasions for people who, like, feel that sense of ostracization yeah. and needing to make a home and a family for themselves around themselves because they don't much like Misty is forcing it every damn turn. <laughs> yeah. I And and I I wondered if that had, like, change the sort of perspective on any of the roles that you've played even really retrospectively. I think that I understand why a mm-hmm. lot of my characters resonate mm-hmm. with the LGBTQ, sorry, mm-hmm. all the letters. Yes, it's many. Community. Yeah. yeah, I'm um, the A on the end, so like we're a late addition. <laughs> I think I think it's because mostly I play people who are, you know, marginalized in some way, mm-hmm. fighting to be themselves Mm -hmm. and accepted as themselves. Like, most of my characters are very specific and other, but I think have a certain amount of delight in being different. Yeah. And enjoying being different. So I guess if you were struggling with that and you watched one of those parts, you'd get a reprieve Mm -hmm. from having to feel bad about being different. Mm -hmm. You get to share in the glee of the character that I'm playing that is... Fighting for it and enjoying it. So mm-hmm. I, that's maybe why. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's completely fair. Um, and I, you know, a, a real enterprise question that I wanted to ask was like sort of in the in the origin of your career. When did you become aware that you changed the lives of so many millennial and Gen X girls by playing in Casper, in Now and Then, and also Wednesday Adams? Like, were you, are you aware of that you're the cultural shift, that you're the vibe shift? <laughs> I'm not so aware of the vibe shift. <laughs> yeah. um, We're all trying but, to pin it down. But I've heard... <laughs> but I've had a lot of people come in and tell me that I was very much a part of their childhoods. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and, I mean, Roberta, Now and Then, queer icon. Yeah, and I just heard recently that they changed the ending of the movie and she's not a lesbian. I didn't know. You did. You didn't. I mean, I haven't seen the movie since I was fifteen. Of course, and I think I forgot that they did that. But when we shot the movie, I was a lesbian. I had kind of heard that, but this is obviously directly from the person doing no, it. We shot it, and Rosie's a lesbian. I mean, in Ro- the end, I mean, Roberta's in a domestic partnership with Rita Wilson in that movie. No, no, They're- no. She had lines where she talked about her own wife in the original ending. This is so affirming. I can't. No, I didn't even know they changed it. And then I was recently I did um I did an interview with Gabby Hoffman for Vanity Fair and she was like, "No, Christina, they changed it." I was like, "No, no, no. No, I was I was, I was a lesbian. There. I was there. I remember. <laughs> what are you talking about?" And I guess they they did change the ending so that she was not a lesbian. What how did they you cut, feel about that? They cut that? out scenes where she talked about it. So they just cut out anything from the end that they had shot where it was clear. How did you feel about that? When I you didn't heard that? know. No, when you heard it. Oh, though. now? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I know you didn't know. I'm not putting silliest, it on you. I just think it's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Why would you? Why? Why would you bother? Mm-hmm. Like why? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No. It's uh, so bizarre. I'm gobsmacked. Also, like even if you were like, oh god, but there are three other ones that turn out straight. Yeah. So like, let one be a lesbian. Yeah. The one that's clearly a lesbian. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is Emmy nominee Christina Ricci. 
I watched your Actors on Actors conversation with Sydney Sweeney and talking to her about sort of enforcing boundaries and limits in a show like Euphoria. And obviously you talking about working around the younger cast members on Yellow Jackets and watching them at such a young age be such forceful advocates for themselves and their limits. And then and talking about like ah, in the 90s, like we weren't really able to come forward like that. Well, at the same time, you've spoken too about like aesthetically in the 90s, you were like, you know, we had bruises on our legs. It was a kind of a messier time. There wasn't necessarily the polish. I bruises on my legs and people are like, what? I'm like, oh, sorry. I, Kristen Stewart going to the Oscars on crutches with like hair undone is an iconic moment in the, the last five years because that is so atypical to now. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to you about that sort of like that clash of having those permissions in the 90s to be something more specific and have something idiosyncratic be sought after and be a sensation while at the same time not being an era in which you felt like you could necessarily advocate for yourself the way you see young actresses doing now. Like, I, I that's just such a wild dichotomy to me. And as someone who was there, I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Like, how did that coexist of a time that was felt so radical but was still pushing you into boxes so much? Well, I don't know. It didn't feel very radical to me at the time. Yeah. It was still a time when, uh, God, everything felt very controlled. Okay. And I felt very much like I could not be who I was. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was always trying um, to—I was always aspiring to be something different so Mm -hmm. that I would find bigger success. And success at that time, like you're talk, like you were saying, was all glossy, and I don't know, you described it better than me, but <laughs> homogenous. Yeah, and and I think it was a time too where, if you wanted to be, well, I don't know, it's hard to talk about without, I don't know, I, without sounding, because I because th- I know everybody had very different experiences. Of course, at that of course, time. yeah. And so my experience though was that. That my personality, who I was, and and what I did was, I think, abrasive mm-hmm. for people, and um, I was always encouraged to. Yeah, it was a weird time, and the fact of the matter is that I engaged in it completely. Okay, so I can complain all I want to about it, but mm-hmm. I was like, "What color should my hair be? Should I be tan? Should I not be tan? Mm-hmm. How thin do I need to be?" Mm-hmm. So. Like, trying to figure out, like, topics of conversation when I went into meetings that would make me seem less threatening. Mm-hmm. Even though a threatening, I'm, you know what I mean? <laughs> what are we going to do, come across this table? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there was a real, um, it was just, it was different. And I, at the time, I could only see one path to being successful. And I wasn't able to take that path uh-huh. because I just wasn't that person. You know, I wasn't. No, I wasn't like quick to laugh or mm-hmm. I didn't love sports. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know what I mean? <laughs> Drag me. I go for it. Like, Drag me, Christina. Watch me shoot pool. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, I was not like a guy's girl or yeah. like, you know, and I, I just don't think that complicated and challenging was real popular at that time. <laughs> yeah. Like in the 2000s? Yeah. How has, is it just like, you know, getting older and wiser and maturation is something that takes you past sort of that point in your life or that kind of struggles? Or is that something that you still deal with and sort of like, what is the persona of Christina Ricci in this iteration of my career? And how do I want to present that? Or are you like, I simply can't take the time to care about that stuff anymore? I have no idea what it's like to be a 20-something during this time. You know, I don't know what it's like or if they have the same concerns or whatever that I did. But, you know, I, I think that older women are afforded a little bit more leeway. Mm. 
you know, I'm not expected to just try to, like, attract a partner at this age or be attractive, <laughs> you know. They're like, all right, you're 40 now. You get to relax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just now you get to be yourself. Yeah. So that's what I feel. I feel like I get to be myself now. And I feel also that through my personal journey, I have sort of seen that I've really been rewarded time and time again for playing to my strengths. Mm-hmm. And nobody really cares what I look like. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at all the parts I play. I don't look anything like myself. Like, I always, <laughs> I, you know, it's just... Yeah. <laughs> and I have other things coming out. Where, like, I, I honestly had no idea the visual aspect of the person I was going to meet today. But I was like, I have no idea who Christina Ricci is when she walks into an interview. And that's the thing. Like, so nobody cares. So at this point in my life, I'm kind of like, I'm able a little bit more to just sort of be like, this is what I look like. Here it is. I'll probably look different later, but here's what I look like right now. And I don't think that my appeal is based on my appearance. Mm-hmm. And I I think knowing that it's more about what I can actually create and do, mm-hmm. just as, you know, and that really is the tonic for all of us, mm-hmm. right? That it's about what you can create. Mm-hmm. It's about your brain. Yeah. It's not about, like your physical appearance or yeah. any of that stuff. So being older and really getting to lean into that and having been rewarded that time rewarded for that time after time, I just feel like I'm now in just a much more comfortable place. I'm still a little scarred by like when I was younger and I did press, I said a lot of crazy things and then got in trouble for them. <laughs> sure. And so I'm still really conscious because I have a weird sense of humor and I tend to say things that I don't actually feel. <laughs> I have a, actually have a couple of very close friends who do the same thing. And you have to and just like, like be then, eyes akimbo. Did they mean that? No, and that, but then if it's in print, <laughs> yeah, you know. They're not in print. You should probably only say things you actually think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I do have to be a little bit conscious of mm-hmm. that. And I do control like that weirdness mm-hmm. a little bit. But that's the only thing now that, I, that, that I'm not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I feel like my only other look back question then would be like they're in the sort of notion of like asserting weirdness and sort of, you know, in the in the 90s, like I think it's in 1997, that darn cat comes out. Mm. And then in 1998, it's Buffalo 66. It's the opposite of sex. Mm -hmm. It's fair and loving in Las Vegas. That seems like a directional pivot of work. From a yeah. kind of category. Well, was that I didn't an, want to be making children's movies ever. Right. Okay. Okay. And I was going to say, was that like a very intentional thing of like, find me these scripts, get me these scripts? This I mean, an- I was nine years old. My mother made me watch all of Hitchcock's movies. <laughs> we were watching Scorsese films in my house. You're like, I'm a rope girl myself. We were not. I did not watch. Like, I have never seen The Sound of Music. Mm-hmm. We do not like musicals in my home. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I saw Goodfellas way too young. Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, what we were making now and then, we were going to see Pulp Fiction in the theaters and watching Reservoir Dogs at the hotel room. Mm -hmm. And, like, I wanted to be making those movies. Yeah. I wanted to be Amanda Plummer. I wanted to be—I wanted to be Sam Jackson, actually. Amazing. (laughs) Iconic pull on Amanda Plummer. Iconic pull, everybody. No, but that's what—like, I was obsessed with these, like, really interesting actors of that time and these—and the—not the the beginnings, because obviously independent film has been around for a long time, but it started to become really popular. Yeah. And I was obsessed with these movies. And so the second I could get into more adult fare, I did. Okay. And also— the other thing, too, is when I was a child actress, there was this thing that you had to stop when you were 13 or 14 because there were no roles for teenagers because they always hired adults to play teenagers yes. because of the time allowances and all of that stuff. So I think at a certain point, my reps at the time and all of us, not me, because I don't think I felt this way, but I think in general people were like, well, I mean, 
she's coming to the end of when she's going to be able to make these movies. Wow. She wants to do this other thing. What's the harm? And then when I became very successful for doing those things, yeah. then people were like, oh, my God, we have a commodity. And the hands came over. Okay. Okay. And that's, I think, when you see in my career, I stopped doing really interesting things mm. and I try to do more mainstream things. Would you feel like that was a product of your decision making or predominantly influence on you to choose a certain way? Well, I think you get like success, success, and you're yeah. on covers and everyone's like, oh, my God, do you know what we could turn this into? And right. you're like, oh, my God, yes, turn it into that. Yeah. How, <laughs> yeah. Sure. What do I have to do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's the thing. People mm. see profit. They see potential. They tell you that. There is all this potential to have, but this is the way to get there. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, shut down that sort of, um, that freedom I felt before and that excitement mm -hmm. when I was just making indies and no one really cared, you know? Yeah. <laughs> My people were like, what is she doing now? I don't know. She's so much in upstate New York. We have no idea what's happening, <laughs> you know? But then, yeah, I, that's what I think kind of what happened. But at the same time, you know, it is very interesting to go back and talk about your past. I'm not a person who ever looks back. So, like, sure. a lot of times Sorry. what I'm—no, it's fine. <laughs> but, I mean, a lot of times I'm, like, figuring that, this out, like, right here in the room with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and I'm, I'm, I'm so great. It's, you know, the, the power dynamic of these conversations is always so damn weird because it's like— So I've sat here and paid nine pages of notes about you, and I've been watching you my entire life, and I'm a total stranger to you. And tell me all about you. I'm like, I feel like I should be, like, sitting here naked or something to make it, like, balance. <laughs> yeah, like— well, listen, it's I'll okay. be naked and you tell me everything about you and that'll somehow make it fair. And but I, I was there a point when you started feeling that sense of freedom again? Because I think for all the for all you misty heads out there, if you have not watched Lizzie Borden took an axe, the movie and the subsequent Lizzie Borden Chronicles, you are missing out on valuable content that will enrich your life. I was going through episode one recently and there's this amazing moment where Lizzie has been acquitted, guys. <laughs> Spoiler. Lizzie's been acquitted. The start of the series is an extension of what happens after the film. And you are marching out of a lawyer's office. There is a man who wants to take your family fortune from you. And there are these girls following you about town singing the Lizzie Borden took an axe story and just mocking you. You grab an axe and you charge at those kids. And one of them looks at you and says, I'm not afraid of you. And you say, well, then you haven't been paying attention. Ignore them. I think you want to fight with them. I want peace. And respect. We can run father's business. We can make a we profit. We don't know the first thing about running I know business. about solving problems. The problem right now is everyone thinks we're an easy target. That has to change. I'm not afraid of you. Then you haven't been paying attention. And I was like, this is giving me my whole life right now. And I there's there's that comes out, and I think it's 2015, as well as Z, the beginning of everything, the story of you playing Zelda, the wife of F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I wanted to talk about that 2015 pivot of work of you producing and starring in these series, these biopic series. Well, I think they're separated by like two years. Okay, okay. Is it 2017 yeah. that Z came out? Yeah, I would almost say 2018. Okay, but okay. But um, I think it might have squeaked out 2017 right okay. before. Yeah. So tell me about moving into like the tens era. We have your Nellie Bly movie as well, the Lizzie Borden and Zelda Fitzgerald. Tell me about this sort of bio story era that you enter and what was compelling about these characters to you. And what I feel like kind of sets a like, obviously, you're on a path your entire career. But like we have a very easy entry point intimacy from those things that you start doing in like the mid tens. I guess so. I'm not 
as proud of that work as other work I've done. Okay. I didn't have a lot of options at that time. Okay. And I've always been a person who feels like, you know, you go in, you do your best work Mm -hmm. no matter what. And that was how I viewed sort of those movies um, before Zelda. Zelda for me was a a book that I read that I brought to Killer Films and set up that TV show. Mm -hmm. The reason I want, and that I felt very strongly about, it didn't turn out the way, it was a first attempt, Mm -hmm. I guess. Sure. (laughs) But I was really obsessed with Zelda Fitzgerald and the way she is remembered. And I had such a different, I just had a different take on her. Mm -hmm. You know, I, for me, she was somebody who was so smart, was an incredible writer when she was younger, but she took the easy way out. You know, Mm -hmm. she has a peer, like a best friend who didn't get married, Mm -hmm. went to college, went to a women's college, became a writer, was successful on her own. Mm -hmm. And Zelda did the opposite. She attached herself to a man thinking that once he was successful, she would be able to write. She would be able to do this. And it was a mistake. And I think she very quickly realized that she was in a, in a, a real situation. We've got more to come with Christina Ricci. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. And now, a live reading from Rachel's Poetry Corner. Elephants Theremin's Clifton, Neopets Poorstrips Jepson, Pine Smell Jellybeans Goalie Goals, Skittles Squirrels and the Mole, Celery Chopsticks Pumpernickel, A Case of You by Joni Mitchell, Lullabies Tie-Dye The More You Know, all of these things on our wonderful show. All of these things and more wait for you on Wonderful every Wednesday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to Jordan Cruciola's conversation with actor Christina Ricci. She's the Emmy-nominated star of Yellow Jackets. Have you reached a threshold where you feel like at this stage, where are you in comparison to sort of like maybe that level of freedom that you felt like in the 90s when you were starting making the indies that no one cared about? much closer now. You feel closer to because that now. Okay. I think, you know, and, and honestly, Yellow Jackets has done so much for me and this character because, you know, we are in, in, in an industry that a lot of times you have to prove that something works first. Yes. You have to prove that people will like something uh-huh. before you're allowed to do it. And so the, this kind of validation means that now people are like, what else do you like? Yeah. What other kind of things do you want to do? Like, yeah. can we find something else that feels like, you know, and, and that's wonderful because it really is validating. And I don't know, not to sound like a baby, but it has not been easy, this this path. No. <laughs> so to all of a sudden have it turn around so much and have people just have such a different reaction to me. I'm like very emotional about it. Well, and I, I've read you talk about like when you were first experiencing such extreme fame, like you couldn't really have perspective on it. You're a kid. You're like, you're like, it's impossible. And I still, that's, st- I feel like I still have that issue where like, uh-huh. I feel like the sky's the ceiling when you start talking about <laughs> what other people think about me. And I'm just like, what? sorry, but I'm in this tiny room and I, I can't <laughs> see out there. Yeah. So, and I've had that, I had that when I first went through fame. This sort of second, this like whatever renaissance or whatever is going on for me feels the same way. I feel very much okay. just focused right here in reality. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know why, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same way. But I'm having a much easier time dealing with it this time than I did then. I mean, it was 19, ni- late 90s. Yeah. And it was just different. 
as someone who grew up, I, and it's it's a weird language to just like say in front of you, but like an icon to so many, like you know, like hey, take that language and internalize that, like feel a way about <laughs> Sew it. it. Sew it on my shirt. Yeah, Sew it on the back of my shirt. <laughs> Honestly, if you did, you would blow up on Twitter. <laughs> if you if you just wore a shirt that said "icon" around and let yourself be photographed, <laughs> and you know, at being such a touch point for so many people at you know, predominantly girls and gays, I think, who are at the same formative age you were when you were playing these characters and sort of grew up with you. Who were you identifying with on screen? Like, did you have an avatar? Yeah, but they're totally ridiculous. Yeah, but like, who are they? I wanted to be Gene Wilder. Yes. Or Chevy Chase. <laughs> or Richard Pryor. But I was you, obsessed but you with hate Gene comedy, Wilder. But Richard, you're uncomfortable with comedy. Not when not when it's Gene Wilder. No, I like watching comedy. <laughs> okay, I just okay. don't want to be the funny one. Okay. I mean, I do. But I have mixed, as we covered, I have mixed feelings. <laughs> but I was obsessed with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor mm-hmm. and Chevy Chase. And that's really who I wanted to be. Yeah. I'm not even considering women, yeah. other women. I, it was really amazing. And then I'd be like obsessed with beautiful women. Mm-hmm. Like I remember meeting, working on a lot where Kim Basinger, oh Kim Basinger was working on. And I literally wrote her a note about how beautiful I thought she was. I was 11 and left it on her trailer door. Oh my God. And so then they came and found me. They were like, Miss Basinger would love to to meet you. And I got to sit in her trailer, and she was in a robe and her hair, and she looked so beautiful. Oh, my God. And I was—so so I wanted to be men, but I was obsessed mm-hmm. in a non-sexual way sure. with beautiful women, which is same. such a funny—I don't know. It's just weird to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be the beautiful women. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, oh, my God, can I do something for you? <laughs> that is, um, that is uh, completely how I organize myself around in the world. <laughs> So that is uh, the realest thing that you could possibly say to me. And with that, <laughs> I have to let you go, uh, unfortunately. Okay, this has been really fun. I, am, I was a little scared when I got into this tiny box, but you know what? This has been great. I know this doesn't scream safety. <laughs> I know this context does not scream safety. I hope we came around to a place. No, I feel good. I felt safe within like five minutes. So <laughs> okay, we're <great>. good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much for Yellow Jackets. And if I could throw every piece of hardware at you for that performance, personally, I would. Christina Ricci, Yellow Jackets, returns on March 26th. You can catch the season premiere on Showtime. As we mentioned before, Jordan hosts the Maximum Fun podcast, Feeling Seen. It's a movie show where guests talk about the first time they saw themselves in a film character. Go find an episode with somebody you like. Uh, w. Kamau Bell has been on the show. Kihui Kwan has been on the show. Susan Orlean. Jasmine Savoy Brown of Yellow Jackets. Lots of awesome people. It's a great show. Thanks, Jordan. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created in the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Of course, the best thing about Los Angeles, California, and there are a lot of good things about Los Angeles, California, is all of the free citrus. I just put a midnight Valencia orange tree into my backyard, along with a little lime bush. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, the great Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Uh, Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. 
You can find Bullseye Interviews on YouTube. You can also find the show on Twitter and on Facebook. Follow us in all those places. We will share with you all the stuff we're up to. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.